Thank you, Peter. Good afternoon, everyone. I, uh, I knew the young people would be in the main going out before I spoke. It's a shame, in a way, because I would like to have asked them if they've ever seen their parents' wedding photographs. Um, I have a personal theory that the main point of wedding photographs is to give your children something to snigger at years later. Um, certainly my own children have always found my wedding photographs to be absolutely hilarious and uh, when I look at them myself, as I do uh, very rarely, I have to confess, but when I do look at them, I, I can understand why. Uh, I got married in 1973. The suit I was wearing had a lapel which stretched from here right to the point of the shoulder. Some of you remember those broad lapel jackets and uh, what of my chest wasn't covered by my suit was covered by my tie that was like a great big <laughs> wide tie and uh, my hair was pretty much permed I confess it was some embarrassment and I had a moustache which just drooped and hung right off the ends of my chin and so it never surprised me when my children look at our wedding photographs that although they happily admit that their mother was very pretty and incidentally, I made that mistake of saying that to Rita a while ago when we were looking at my stupidly said, gosh, darling, you were really pretty. <laughs> Which wasn't well received. I knew it was wrong as soon as I said it. But uh, whilst they can see that my, my wife uh, was and is very pretty, of course, they find me absolutely hilarious. And maybe children and young people today would also be slightly amused and perhaps even puzzled by the, the language which was used when their parents got married. The, the litany and the liturgy of the church. For example, in the common book of prayer, uh, these words are spoken concerning marriage. Marriage is not to be entered into unadvisedly or lightly, but reverently, discreetly. Interesting word in that context. doesn't mean we meant to get married in secret. <laughs> it means we meant to use our discretion and our judgment about the whole business. Reverently, discreetly, advisedly, soberly, and in the fear of God. Well, it's, uh, it's uh, a language which is not perhaps used a great deal nowadays, but it did underline, and it does underline, that marriage is a very serious thing, isn't it? And the vows which people make when they get married are similarly to be very serious. When we enter into marriage, we enter into what we might reasonably call a binding agreement. That's the theory anyway. And of course, uh, Nehemiah chapter 9 concluded with the, the people of God entering into a binding agreement, making very serious vows, pledges and promises. And in short, I'll just remind you, they contracted with God to do four things. First of all, to do whatever God told them to do. Secondly, to not be like everybody else on the basis that most other people couldn't care less what God had to say. They were intent on doing their own thing. God's people were not to be like that. Thirdly, they bound themselves to give to God whatever he was entitled to, whatever he had a right to expect from them. And given that God was God, and given that God had rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, and given that God had protected them and provided for them over 40 years in the desert, and given that God had brought them into a homeland and given them cities and houses and gardens and olive groves, which they hadn't worked for, built or planted, God was pretty well entitled to the best that they could give him. And they bound themselves to give God 
what he was entitled to. And fourthly, their binding contract was to support the people who served them and served God to such a degree that they were not available to earn a living for themselves. Now those are the four key elements in the binding agreement which the people made with God. They, they basically realised that in their lives to that point, God had been a poor runner-up in terms of priorities in their lives. And uh, from that time, they determined that God would matter and that God's affairs would matter to them and that they would no longer neglect the house or the affairs of God. Well, that brings us from chapter 9 and chapter 10. I went over last week with you, so we're now into chapter 11, which it's been noted, is full of names, isn't it? I mean, only an obsessive like me would count them, and I have done. There are over 80 personal names and over 30 place names in chapter 10. In fact, only four of the verses in the chapter do not contain a personal or a place name. So effectively, you've invited me to preach today on four verses. I think it's an example of the truth that whilst undoubtedly all scripture is inspired by God, all scripture is not equally inspiring. Do you get that? All scripture is inspired, but I mean no disrespect to God's word. For those of you with theological bent, I believe in the infallibility of God's word and the authority of God's word and the inspiration of God's word. But all scripture, whilst undoubtedly inspired, is not all equally inspiring. I was preaching this morning at a church in Coventry on the words of Jesus from John 11. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Aren't those wonderful words? And I prayed with one of the leaders of the church before I went into the service to, to preach. Said, Lord, send some of us out of here today with a, a, a louder song in our hearts and a bit of a more spring in our steps. I mean, that's the effect that some of God's word has us, isn't it? Lists of names, not so much. But they're there, they're in the word of God and they will always repay our study. And I think there are some lessons for us even in this list of names. After all, the book of Nehemiah is a history book. And for the Jews, history and family records were important. And there are two lessons for, for me at least in this. Number one, maybe there's a lesson here about the importance of accurate and honest reportage. Accurate and honest reporting. Do you ever get opportunity to share with your partner churches what God is doing here at Kenilworth and how the church is going or how the church is growing? Do you have opportunity to, to share at conferences or with your trustees or with financial supporters? When we have those opportunities, we need to be honest and we need to be accurate. Not general, not vague and not exaggerated. I long ago came to the decision that most evangelical Christians, probably myself among them, can't really count. Because it seems to me that when we count people, the number of people who attend a service or an event, I think we're counting legs, aren't we? Has it ever struck you that we're good at counting legs? People, I say to people, how many people do you have in your congregation? They say, oh, we get 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 or, or more. I think to myself, well, not when I go, you don't. Now, there may be a reason for that. I'll, I'll, I'll quickly acknowledge that. But sometimes I think evangelicals count legs. 
So here we have a very accurate and very detailed, very precise and undoubtedly very honest bit of historical recording. And surely there's a little lesson for us in that, isn't there? The second lesson from this list is the importance of publicly appreciating people who play a part in our project or in our ministry, because that's essentially what Nehemiah is doing. He's, he's putting in writing the names of the people who've played a part. He's acknowledging them and appreciating them. And as I read through all these names, and I did make my way in a fairly pedestrian and stumbling way through all these names in my study, as I look through these names, I note that as far as I can see, there are no women mentioned. don't know if that had occurred to you. It doesn't seem there were any women mentioned in this list of people who were in Jerusalem. And yet we know that there were women in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, we read in chapter 3 and verse 12 that Shalom, who was a ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section of the wall with the help of his daughters. So there, there's a nod of the head to the fact the daughters helped, but they're not named personally. Now, I'm not going to make a big deal out of this, but I suspect this is probably a cultural thing for that time and that place. But I do ask you to contrast this list with the list compiled by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 16, when he notes publicly his appreciation of people who played a part in his project and in his ministry. The Apostle Paul in Romans 16 mentions about 30 people and a third of them are women that he mentions by name. And for me the lesson is this, the Gospel makes a difference. The Gospel makes a difference to how people are regarded and how people are treated. In fact, at the risk of sticking my neck out too far, I will tell you, I think it is probably true that in countries where the gospel has made a real impact, in countries impacted by the Protestant faith, generally speaking, women have a better deal than they do in other countries. Because the gospel makes a difference to how people are regarded and how women are esteemed and treated. All right, well now on into chapter 4, or chapter 11, and there are four points to identify and underline. I'm going to tell you what they are, and then we'll look at them. Number one is this. The city had no population other than the construction team. The city had a parapet, but it had no population. It had been repaired in order to be lived in. Did you get something out of that? The city had been repaired, it had been repaired in order to be lived in. Number two, the leaders set the example, a good example. Number three, growth was intentional. And number four, all sorts of people and skills were necessary if the city was going to thrive and grow. I'm going to give you that again. The city needed people. The leaders set the example. Growth was intentional and everybody was necessary. Those are the four simple points that I take from these verses in chapter 4. So here's the first one again. The city needed a population. It needed people to defend it. It needed people to live in it. Nehemiah hadn't got all the trouble of building the walls just so they could be knocked down again by the enemies of God's people. And he hadn't gone to all this trouble to build a museum. He wasn't looking to preserve something. He wanted something that was populated, vibrant, living, growing. And there's a point of application here for us as a local church. Because growing a church is like that. Lots of good work can come quickly unpicked if people just stay away from the services and the events. Lots of good work comes unpicked if people are allowed to just 
infiltrate and spread false teaching. Good work can come quickly unpicked unless people are, are really engaged with and active in a local church, just as the good work in the city would have come undone had it remained unpopulated. You see, for 70 years, Jerusalem had been a ghost town. Then the temple was rebuilt, and now the walls are rebuilt. But if it was going to grow, it needed people. And for churches, well, I believe it is generally God's will that a local church grows. In Acts chapter 9, we read that the church throughout Judea and Samaria was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, and it grew in numbers. I believe that's God's will for most local churches, that you should grow in numbers. And they were living in the fear of the Lord. The church in Judea and Samaria not only got bigger, it got better. Don't go for lopsided growth. I may have said this to you on a previous visit. Don't be lopsided in your ambitions or your growth. There's no reason why a church can't get both bigger and better simultaneously. We don't have to choose between one or the other. Alright, here's the second main point. The leaders set a good example because the leaders were already resident in the city. They couldn't expect people to go and live in the city if they themselves were unwilling to do so. And living in a city was challenging and it was risky and it meant hardships and the leaders were willing to do all that and undergo all that and set the example for the people. Now, every association of human beings needs leadership. Whatever it is, whether it's an army or a family or a university or a company or a Euro semi-finalist football team, it needs, it needs leadership, doesn't it? And it needs leaders who set the pace and it needs leaders who are on the pace. And that's what this city had. It had leaders who set a good example to the people. The third main point is this, that Growing the city was intentional, it wasn't accidental. Some people were, I think, possibly conscripted to come from the surrounding villages and live in the city. Nehemiah seems to be taking the tithing principle, the idea of giving one out of every ten. He seems to be taking the tithing principle and applying it to the people themselves and picking one out of every ten to come and live in the city. I'm not sure if those who were chosen considered themselves winners or losers, but that's what they did. And there's a challenge there for us as a church. Warren Wiersbe, the American Bible teacher, has said this. I wonder what would happen in the average local church if 10% of the congregation were asked to relocate in order to strengthen and extend the work of God. I wonder what would happen in the average local church if 10% of the congregation were asked to relocate in order to strengthen and extend the work of God. Now, it may be that some of you are praying right now about this. Maybe some of you are facing the challenge. I don't know where you all live. I assume most of you live from Kenilworth and its immediate environs, but perhaps some of you don't. And maybe God is challenging you about the need to be more engaged with the community here and to be living closer to the fellowship here. Well, that's what happened here. 10% of the people had to relocate in order to make the work of God prosper. Other people, of course, volunteered. And these people had something that the city needed. You see, they were settled in surrounding villages, they had their jobs and their homes and their families, and they were peacefully coexisting with God's enemies. Do you realise that? Because they weren't uh, big enough in number, scattered in the air, in the region as they were, to pose a threat to God's enemies. They could just go about their daily business. 
Life, to some degree, was comfortable for them in the villages, but in the cities it would be hard. In chapter 7 and verse 4, we're told that the houses had not been built. So here's a wonderful thing. Nehemiah says to people, who wants to come and live in Jerusalem? And some of them say, well, I do. That's good. Right, what do you want me to do? Well, your first job is build your house. It reminds me of going camping on holiday or taking a caravan on holiday this year. I, I, I confess, I've got too old now for going on a holiday where the first thing I have to do when I get there is build the place I'm going to sleep. I don't want to go on holiday and build my bedroom. I did when I was younger and when the children were younger. Um, I have to tell you, but I think probably in 48 years of marriage, I'm not sure that um, our marriage has ever been under such strain as it comes under when my wife and I would arrive at a, va- at a caravan or a campsite and try and put up a tent or erect a caravan awning. Any of you, does that resonate with anybody or am I the only person who's... Honestly, it was World War Three. We used to get to a caravan site or a campsite and send the children away. We said, go and find the shop, go and find the beach, go to come back in an hour or so. And by that time, Rita and I had had the Third World War and we were, we were, we were at peace. Do you know that tents and awnings have a nickname? They're called divorce in a sack. Did you know? Divorce in a sack. Well, so Nehemiah says, now come and live in the city, but the first thing you've got to do, there's nowhere for you to live. The houses are in ruins. So you've got to build your home. Life would be hard in the city. And yet people volunteered because they had something the city needed. They had a willingness to embrace change. They had a willingness to work hard. They had a bit of pioneering spirit. And the local church needs that. People in a local church need that. They need the willingness to embrace change. They need the wisdom to discern which changes to embrace and which changes to resist, but they need the willingness to embrace change. Don't don't be like the old church warden. He'd been the church warden in a, in a parish church for nearly 50 years and on one occasion the bishop was visiting that church and talking to the warden at one point he said, uh, how long have you been church warden here? He said, nearly 50 years. Nearly 50 years, you grace. He said, my word, said the bishop, you must have seen some changes. Yes, said the chap. And I resisted all of them. Don't be like that. Every living thing changes. And you know, because of that lovely hymn, Abide With Me, I think sometimes a a bad seed has been sown in our minds about change. There's a lyric in the hymn, Abide With Me, change and decay in all around I see. It's not a good linkage. I understand in the context what the hymn writer was saying, but the two words do not make for a good linkage. Not all change is bad. Not all change is decay. We have a two and a half year old grandson and I can remember the excitement when he took his first step, the excitement when he took his first word. And when he took his first step, neither us nor his parents turned around and said, oh dear, well it's all downhill from now. Look at him decaying. Isn't that sad? Some change is good. We need the wisdom to discern which is good and which is not, but we do need the willingness to embrace change. So these people had something which the city needed. And I want you to note this as well, that going to live in the city of Jerusalem was a declaration of intent. People who went to live in the city were saying by going, we're going to grow this place. We're going to grow this place. We're going to grow our nation. We're going to become a force to be reckoned with. So be very careful. Uh, Don't get stuck in a rut. Don't just mindlessly reproduce in Kenilworth what you've previously experienced in Leamington or Warwick. 
There may be nothing wrong with what's happening in Leamington or Warwick. I speak as a member, as a past leader of, uh, of Mighton Church. That doesn't necessarily mean it's right for Kenilworth. Be open to change. And the fourth main point is this. The city needed a wide range of people and skills. Uh, and if we were to go back to that passage which Helen read to us so, so, so very well and, and helpfully, we would see all manner of uh, skills and abilities listed. Uh, some of the people were builders. Uh, some were priests. Some were managers. Some were administrators. Some were musicians. Some were singers. Some were fighters. And some of these people are described in chapter 11 as able men. And some Bible versions translate that as valiant men. Because the city, much like a local church, needs everyone to make a contribution to bring their particular skill to the party. And they all needed to be valiant because they would all have difficulties and a fight on their hands. So there we are, four, I think, fairly simple and I hope self-evident points from the, the passage. But I, I can't really close without ju- just saying this. The focus in Nehemiah is, of course, on the building of the walls of a physical city. In the New Testament, Christian believers are, are told to be focused on a city as well. We're told that Christians look to, or look for, it really means look forward to, a city whose builder and maker is, is God. God invites people to become a citizen of what he is building, to become part of what he is doing, and ultimately to go to be with him in that place which God has prepared for those who love him. Very important to know where you're going. Very important to be sure that you're going to the city whose builder and maker is God. And the only way to be sure of that is to have Jesus Christ as your personal saviour, to believe in him and to follow him. Thank you so much for your patience uh, with me over these last four visits. You've been very gracious to me. I hope that you've extracted from what I've said uh, one or two things which will be of real usefulness to you. I'd like to pray with you now before I step down. Father, we thank you for preserving this record of this remarkable builder, this remarkable project, this great work. Thank you, Lord, for anything and everything you've said to us through it. Particularly, Lord, help us to remember and to, to pick up on those points which apply to us in our immediate situation here in this locality. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you, Peter.